You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. And if you would please turn there um, and look at it in your own either Bible or your, uh, if you have an app for a Bible, those are pretty cool as well. And this particular passage, I'll give you another second to turn there, ends with this idea that the Lord um, is, the Lord looks with favor to those who fear his word. And we as Christians would say, oh, the, the Bible is God's word. It's words to us. And, and God speaks in other ways as well, but we would hold the Bible as, as the most important way that we have for God speaking to us. So I'm going to read this passage. It's just two verses. Isaiah 66, starting in verse 1. It says, This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where uh, will my resting place be? Has not uh, my hand made all these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord. So it's like the Lord is saying how awesome um, he is and that he doesn't need a home to live in. You can't build that. He has built his own home. He has built the world. He has everything in it is his and all that he has made. And then he says this, these are the ones I look with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and those who tremble at my word. And so let's pray this morning. Jesus, as we um, come before you and, and talk about Scripture and your Word, God, make it alive to us. Allow us to be those people you look upon with, uh, with favor, that we would tremble at your words, that we would take them seriously, that we would know your will and your spirit and what you are doing on this earth because of the words you've given to us, specifically through the context of the canon of Scripture. So God, we, we praise you, we worship you this morning, and everybody said, Amen. Um, does anybody like to read? Anybody? Not everybody likes to read, but I like to read now. All growing up uh, through middle school and elementary school, I hated reading. I was always in like the special reading classes and the teacher would always make a big deal about, oh, these are the special students. They're going to go down the hall and read their special stuff. Um, it's like, I and even as a kid, I was like, I know you're saying this is special, but really it's, it's remedial reading is what we're doing. Um, and so I didn't like reading all growing up. I was slower at it. I, I didn't have the comprehension. Um, it, it, was just, it was just hard for me. Um, and so I did lots of special reading classes and eventually kind of, kind of got my wings and, and started reading at a, at a better level. Um, and it was, it was this year, my junior year of high school, um, I, I, my eyes were open to English and reading and literature in a way that they never had been before because as I was a junior, the seniors that I was friends with were all talking about Mrs. Billings' senior advanced placement English literature class. And they would go on and on about at lunchtime about what they talked about and the assignments they had to read. You know, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and Shakespeare and Gilgamesh and Milton and all these classics that they had to read. And it was almost like a book a week, book a week that they had to read. And they would talk about them. And the, the way Miss Billings taught was almost like, she was just an outstanding teacher, very uh, like Socrates-ish, like never just told you the answer, but kind of asked these wandering questions. And you would ask questions and she would ask a question back. And just a great teacher with a group of students, seniors that really wanted to be there. And so anyways, I was listening to all this as a junior. And so I remember begging my counselor to put me into advanced placement English with Mrs. Billings. And she did. For some reason, it worked. And so I went into this class and it was 
I, I still look at it as one of the top probably five classes I've ever been in. And it opened my eyes to English literature and reading. And now I actually like reading and enjoy it. And I remember this one discussion that we had. And here's where this story is going um, that'll bring us back to the Bible um, and, and what we're talking about today. So we read this uh, short story. It's called The Bet by Anton Chekhov. And he's a Russian author. Lots of people consider him the best short story writer Period. Like the, one of the best, if not the best. And I won't ruin the ending for you, but um, this very short story that you could probably read in 20 minutes is about these two guys that bet. And guys are always betting about weird stuff. Like, man, I bet, bet you I can get you betting by the end of the day. It's like, all right. <laughs> Anyways, dumb and dumber quote. Anybody recognize that? Okay, good. Anyways, these guys are at a party in this short story called The Bet. And one of them's talking about solitary confinement, how, how horrible it must be. And the other one's like, eh, it's not so bad. And so they bet. One of them is a, a wealthy banker, and he, gives, he, he bets the other one millions um, if he will be uh, solitarily confined in a little cabin for 15 years. He's not allowed to go out of the cabin. He has one little window in which he can look out. And so for 15 years, he has no human contact. He can write letters to people, but he can't receive letters back until those 15 years are over. He, uh, you can't go outside. He can request anything he wants. If he wants books, he gets books. If he wants food, whatever food he wants, he gets food. If he wants games to play by himself, he can get the games and cards, or, uh, newspapers, magazines, whatever. He could get anything he wants at the request, but he has to stay in this cabin for 15 years. Anybody interested in that bet? A couple of people, really? 15 years? If you're 20, you won't be like 35 until you get out. Really? Anyway, so the story is about this guy who undertakes the bet, and, and the story is going somewhere. Um, so he takes the bet. The first year, he's very depressed. The next year, he gets into music and plays the piano for like a full year. That was his thing. Uh, the third year, if I remember the story right, he kind of goes into uh, drinking alcohol and eating food and resting and just kind of loafing around. The ne- it's, it, at some point, about six years in, he decides, I'm going to read and study philosophy, um, history, languages. And so for the next four years in the story, it says he reads 600 volumes and becomes a master at them in these four years of solitary confinement. And then here's the line which, which the story is coming to. Actually, before I, 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 I will say that I won't ruin the end, but the end has this really cool twist if you want to go out and read this uh, short story by Anton Chekhov. But anyways, there's this one line. And so I've told this whole story story for this one line of the story, and I'll read it here, and it says, after the 10th year, the prisoner sat immobile at the table, reading nothing but the Gospels. It seemed strange to the banker, that's the guy that's going to pay him millions if he stays in the cabin for 15 years, but it seemed strange to the banker that the man who had for four years mastered 600 volumes and learned so many languages would waste a year over one thin book of easy comprehension. And stop and think about that for a second. Say, so this guy for four years read like 600 volumes, and then he spends one full year reading the Gospels, which, which if you hold out in your Bible is about this much, these, that, that many pages. And what was so cool, the reason why I tell this story, is that we had a discussion about this short story in Mrs. Billings' advanced placement uh, senior 
English lit class. And it was an amazing discussion with, with some of us in there that were Christians. I was one of the Christians at that time. Some, and some of the people in there were atheists. Some of the people in there just had no religious preference. Uh, and so we had this conversation about how, and everybody was on the same page, like, yeah, that is true. How the gospels do speak. And they, and they, they are, that you could read them and bring your life experiences to the gospel and read about how Jesus dealt with people. And then maybe years later, come back with different life experiences and read the gospels and they appear alive to you all over again, even though your circumstances are different. And so it's, it's like alive. And so here's this secular, it wasn't a Christian school, by the way, um, this secular uh, school in this classroom, everyone's just chiming in about how awesome the gospels are. And then we, we broadened it to the Bible and it's like, yeah, the Bible does speak to us. And it's, it's awesome as a piece of literature and a piece of philosophy and religion, how it's, how it is so awesome. And I just remember in that conversation, um, that I think lasted about the whole hour that we really got onto this idea of how literature speaks to us specifically religious literature and specifically the gospels, how they're alive to us and how they speak to us and how awesome that was. I mean, it was just a really cool conversation and which led me to this idea of today's um, thesis is that we're, we're going to talk about where the Bible, where specifically the New Testament came from. And so my thesis for this morning in this, this lecture or uh, sermon, whatever you want to call it, is that the Bible does speak to us. The books of the New Testament, uh, the books of the Old Testament do speak to us. And I, from this class, I was like, even a non-believer can recognize that there's something special about these books. Just from that conversation I had in high school with the, the other students at my table and uh, with, as a class as a whole, there is something special about it. So my thesis is that the, the books of the Bible spoke to the early church and they recognized it, just like we today can recognize that the books are still speaking to us today. So so much so that, that there were some books that didn't speak to the church and some books that did, and the books that did speak to the church were the books that made it into um, the text that we now call the canon of Scripture. So that's just kind of an intro story. Um, and so, let's see, where are we going from here? We are talking about the bigger idea of the Apocrypha all this month. Um, how many of you have been with us the whole, all three other weeks? Actually, this would be the, this, yeah, three other weeks. This is the fourth week. There'll be one more Sunday. Uh, quite a few of you. We've been talking about how the Apocrypha is books of the Bible that are left out of the, ca- the canon of Scripture from the Catholic Church, the Old Testament, these seven books. And then we're also talking about uh, the idea of Apocryphal, just little a Apocryphal, um, <coughs> these, idea, this books, these books that are just unclassified as like, oh, books that are like lost books of the Bible or books that for whatever reason didn't make it in. And so today we're going to specifically talk about how, continue this story of how we got the New Testament. And then uh, next week, we'll, if you're interested in like, what are some of these books? What do they say? Well, I'm going to pick a few of them this week and I will present them to you next week. Like a Tobit would be fun. Book of Enoch would be fun. Shepherd of Hermas would be fun, but we'll see how much time we have for specific books next week. So if that's what you're interested in, if that's what you've been waiting for, that's what we will do next week. And then the month of August, just as a far as a heads up, we are going to have the elders of New Life Church um, come in and share with us as the Mill Sunday School. So um, that will, we, we're calling it the wisdom of the elders. And so that is the month of August, in case you were wondering. So let's continue. Um, 
Welcome to Mill Sunday School. If you're new, there's these cards on the table, and you can fill one of them out and bring them to the back as you leave. Uh, they'll give you a, a worship, or it's like a CD with some worship songs and a welcome sermon on it. Or you could bring it to me. I would love to meet you. Um, and so welcome to the Mill Sunday School if you're new. And um, by way of just announcements, we are always looking for more Mill Sunday School leaders. So if you, if you, I know a lot of you come early anyways and like to hang out and stay late. Um, if you're interested in the Mill leadership, it's basically like a service team. Um, that people that, you know, brew the coffee. Um, the, the coffee just doesn't get brewed by Oompa Loompas. Uh, the Mill Sunday School leadership does that. And the food and the cleaning up and the setting up. Um, so... If you're interested, pick up a leadership application on your way out at the the back there. So, shall we talk about the New Testament? Okay, so let's talk about the New Testament. We'll begin with here, we'll kind of end here as well, in this bigger idea that we have the canon of Scripture. Canon, um, by the way, doesn't mean like cannonballs and firing things. Canon, C-A-N-O-N, one N, uh, and then one at the end. Um, (laughs) Cannonball is like C-A-N-N-O-N, so don't be confused. Canon of Scripture means the rule of Scripture, the standard. And we would say that the 39 Old Testament books, the 27 New Testament books, are our Scriptures. And they've been handed down to us from the early church. And, and I would argue, and my thesis is that the early church, those books that are in the Bible, spoke to the people of the early church just like they speak to us now. And that's why they got bound together. And that's why potentially other books did not get bound because they're like they had some reasons, like oh they weren't written by an apostle, they weren't written at the apostle's time, and so sure that makes sense. Oh, let's not put those books in the same category as canon and sacred and scripture. But I think this this bigger idea, my other thesis this morning, is that the New Testament formed very organically. It didn't form by you know some council getting together and like picking books out of thin air, saying oh this book and that book, but not this one, and just randomly picking. And then the council says the council has spoken. It was much more organic, much more maybe grassroots than that. And so here is the story of how we got the Bible. And this question, I'm going to begin with a discussion question, which if you were here last week, is the same discussion question with maybe a, a different sort of twist to it. But this question, can we add a book to the Bible? Here we are in 2012. And the question is, you know, what if we found another book? Like let's say archaeologists are doing their Indiana Jones things and they're in uh, some tunnel or cave somewhere. They find a bunch of uh, uh, pots and they break open the pots and there is some scrolls, some codices uh, that are very ancient. And one of them happens to be a book that Paul refers to. So we asked this question last week, which I'll ask again this week. So prepare yourselves to, to talk with some people at your table. And Colossians 4.16 says this. So stay with me. Um, It's just random verse in uh, Colossians where Paul says, after this letter, so Colossians, has been read to you, uh, see to it also uh, that is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And so take this same letter, the Colossians letter. It's so important. Um, I want you to also read it to the church, meaning in Laodicea, and that you in turn Read the letter from Laodicea. Everybody say, what letter is that? 
Exactly. I don't think we have this letter. It, it, we have some forgeries possibly, but I don't think we actually have this letter. It's been lost in history. And like going back, like people didn't write things down in like Facebook that could be saved and like you could look back at it. It's like, no, people wrote on actual pieces of paper that were pr- very poor quality compared to today. And after a couple hundred years, Pieces of paper rot. They fall apart. They turn to dust. And so we just don't have this letter anymore. But uh, what if we found it? So here was the discussion question. Uh, What if the letter from Laodicea is found and verified? And then I put this thing in, which I think just added more confusion last week. Um, All of your questions about the book are positively answered without any doubt. Should we add this book to the canon? And I'm going to cross out that 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 kind of hypothetical idea. I mean, the whole thing's hypothetical, but let's just say we found the letter of Laodicea and it's verified. Of course, there's always going to be doubt surrounding, is this really the letter? Is this really a forgery? <clears throat> but for whatever reason, scholars say, oh, it's verified. It's, we, we think it's Paul's writing. He writes, he sounds just like Paul. Um, the piece of paper that was written on is a manuscript. It's dated with other things that were also dated at the same time. So it's not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it is verified. We found this letter, um, which is possible. We could find this letter at some point, you know, if we're still doing our archaeologist things and Indiana Jonesing it up um, in the Middle East and, and Northern Africa. We could find this letter. Who knows? This is very hypothetical. So the question is, should this book be added to the Bible? Should we like stop the NIV from being like, stop the presses. We got another book to add. Put it in, quick, put it in, and then reprint it and like send it out. And here's your new Bible. It's got the Laodicean, the letter from Laodicea, whether it's Paul's letter or letter to them. I'm not really sure. But anyways, let's say it's found. Should we put it in the Bible, stop the presses and put it in? That's your question. Ready, get set, discuss. All right, I imagine some of you are probably asking questions about the book before you're like, yeah, we should add it or no, we should not. I imagine some of you asked like, uh, did anyone ask the question, does it go against other things written in scripture? Does the, does this particular book go against, um, other passages of scripture? Did anybody think about that and ask that question? A couple of people did. Great. Some of you probably asked questions like, well, how is it verified? How do we know that Paul really, really wrote this? And if there's any doubt, like, should we just throw it in? Um, no. I imagine some of you that, that may lean towards, yeah, we should throw it in, probably said something like, well, Paul says we should read it. And if Paul says we should read it, then we found it. Well, then maybe we should. Maybe we should read it. Um, so maybe we'll have another vote. How many of you thought uh, we should add it into the scripture? Stop the NIV press, throw it in. A couple iffy hands. Sweet. How many of you are like, nah, let's hold off. So the majority of you. And I think last week it was, it was much more half and half because I put in that statement that I then crossed out that the, this hypothetical thing that all your questions about it could be positively answered without any doubt. And that's just not the way history works. That's not the way archaeology works. Um, that's not the, the way real life works, that all your questions about anything could be answered positively. There's always amount of faith and amount of understanding and amount of uh, researching and, and coming to conclusions. So anyways, um, if you're wondering where I stand, I would say let's not be too quick to just throw it in. If it's found, you know, this year in 2012, let's not stop the NIV and the King James and the New King James and the RSVs um, from printing and throw it in there. Let's wait. Let's, let's not burn this thing. Let's not throw it in the trash. 
But let's study it. Let's look at it as, as a body of Christ. Hey, let's read it. Let's not shun it. Let's not call it satanic or something crazy. Let's just read it for what it is. Look it up. Um, spend some time with it. But let's not throw it into the same category as the books that have made it into Scripture. Because the story of how we got the New Testament canon, if you're taking notes, here's where we're going from here on out uh, this morning, is I think the story of how we got the 27 books of the New Testament is important. It, it, the, the way God worked to form these 27 books, to have authors, the apostles, write them or write about Jesus or write about the apostles, the way these books were written, the way that they formed and, and became um, canonized is, in fact, important. And, and, and so we're going to look at this story today. And I think by the end of it, you'll say, yeah, God did work in that process. Yes, God did speak to the early church and the writers of Scripture. And it is holy and sacred. And the way the Holy Spirit formed these books of the New Testament is important. That formation story is an awesome story. Let's not be, you know, let's not unravel it. Let's not, oh, just throw some books in because they might be the, the Laodicean letter. Let's be very careful with what we say is scripture and with what is not scripture. And we made this, this, um, this difference between canonical and deuterocanonical a long time ago. And deuterocanonical means secondary to Scripture. And, and, and so maybe this, this church of the Laodicean letter would be considered secondary to Scripture. And so it's like, well, let's not put it in with the Scripture, but let's have it. Let's keep it. We, maybe we can learn something about Paul. Maybe we could learn something about the early church. Heck, maybe we could even use it as a devotional material, like, like someone could use C.S. Lewis or anything— uh, current Christian rights, but let's not throw it into the same category as Scripture. So that's where I am, um, and feel free to, you know, enter into that conversation and dialogue and discuss. And, um, and so anyways, and, and by the way, we haven't found the letter to the Laodiceans, so it's a hypothetical situation. But continuing on, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put up a timeline, a very brief um, emphasis on brief, because I'm only going to put up eight points in this timeline. So if you're taking notes, you could pretty easily write down all eight of these points. And by the end of it, I hope you will have a pretty good sense of like, yeah, I could explain to somebody how we got the New Testament. Whereas maybe coming in here, you're just like, yeah, didn't God just, you know, hand it down from the clouds and and then somebody grabbed it, and now we have it. It's like, well, no, it didn't happen like that. It happened very differently. But, but in, a, in a sense, God did give it to us and to the church, the early church, and we have passed it on. And I think the Holy Spirit was very much a part of that work, the writing and the, the forming of which books were in the canon. And so let's look at these points. I have eight points. Um, and so the first one begins with the New Testament was written. The books of the New Testament was written. And I wrote down 33 AD through 100 AD. And of course, this, the, all these numbers are going to be AD because we are talking about the New Testament, and that is the after the death of Christ. And so the 33 AD is supposedly when the, Jesus' death happened. And so very early on, scholars think that uh, the passion narrative that is in Mark was written. Who knows? Maybe the year of Jesus' death? Who knows? Maybe a couple years later? We don't know exactly, but probably the very first thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that was written down was the, the story of, of when Jesus died and then the next day he was, excuse me, three days later, he was raised from the dead. Like that little portion of Mark was probably the first thing written down. And, and maybe Mark didn't write it, but Mark picked up on that piece and wrote it. And then, and then Matthew and Luke maybe have copied the original passion narrative or they copied Mark. Not sure, but I put the, the date 33 AD because potentially 
The Gospels were being formed and configured very, very early on. And I put the, the date 100 AD, that's kind of a guess. And I put the question mark behind it because uh, a lot of scholars think Revelation was the last book written at 95 AD. But there's questions about that. We don't know for sure. Um, and so could it have been past 100? Could some of the Bible books have, of the New Testament been written after 100? Possibly. So I put the question mark there. But, and so here we have the books of the New Testament written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then letters of Paul letters of Peter, letters of John, the Apocalypse of John, all written at some point um, within the lifetime of, of the apostles that lived, that were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so that's that. Um, and then to compare with how we got the New Testament, I made a joke that, you know, if you don't know how we got the New Testament, maybe you just thought, oh, it was handed down from the clouds and someone got it and someone started passing it along as scripture. Well, that's not at all how we got the canon of scripture. That's not at all how we got the books of the Bible. They were written by real people, real people like you and me. And they were eyewitnesses to Jesus. Some of them had miracles, prayed for things, and they happened. And that's pretty awesome. They were considered apostles. That's pretty awesome. But nonetheless, they were people just like you and me, writing about Jesus, who was God and man at the same time. So he wasn't like, just like one of us, uh, but he was, he was 100% human, 100% man. Don't need, need to get into the hypostatic union right now. But I'm talking about the authors of the, the books that we call the Bible. They, they were not just handed down directly from God to man. It was like people writing letters. Like if you look at most of the New Testament, it's mostly Paul writing some letters. It's mostly gospel accounts, histories of people writing down their thoughts and, and getting the data of what happened. For instance, Luke begins his gospel with, um, I made sure to write down everything, um, decided to write an orderly account for you uh, so that you may know the, the things that have been taught. And so Luke was a compiler of these stories from eyewitness firsthand accounts of Jesus. And so that's how the books were written, which is very, 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 very different than these two books. Maybe some of you know who each one of these guys are. Anybody know the guy on the left? Yeah, that'd be Muhammad, and he's holding the book. Uh, anybody know? The Quran, of course. And for him, for Muslims, they believe that Muhammad uh, received directly from the angel Gabriel the words of God. So the Quran, according to their beliefs, is the direct words of God through the, I guess indirect, through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad down onto his pen, and it's written down in the Quran. And we would say the books of the New Testament were not written like that. They were written more as histories of, of what Jesus said. And we would say, yeah, God didn't just give us a book. God gave us himself, Jesus, and he was God fully on this earth, fully human, fully God. And the books of the Bible are testaments of what things he said and the things his followers did right after him, like the book of Acts. Um, and so it's very different. And then the guy on the right, anybody know? Yeah, that is. It's Joseph Smith, and he would be, of course, holding uh, in this particular picture uh, the, the Book of Mormon, the books, uh, maybe the Doctrine of the Covenants, the, the, the Mormon scriptures. And for them, uh, the LDS Church, Latter-day Saints, they believe that uh, Joseph Smith found some golden plates buried in the ground, and they were, I, I believe they were directly written on by an angel, uh, and it held another Old Testament story of how Jewish people came to the Americas and lived, and then Jesus appeared to them. And so, like, okay, those are the direct words of God as written on these golden plates 
by the angel. I believe Moroni or Moroni showed Joseph. I, I need to go back and look at all that. But to, co- to compare and contrast the Bible with these two other um, books that are holy for other religions, the Bible's not like that. We would not say, yeah, the Bible was directly handed to humans. We would not say, say that. We would say, no, this is a testament of Jesus. And we would say Jesus is God. Jesus is this perfect example of truth on this earth. And the Bible is about him and holds the words that he said and did. And, and I think that's that the fact that the New Testament is written by many authors, I would say that's actually a good thing. Because if, if, if Joseph Smith turns out to be uh, false, then the whole religion's fault. The whole religion hangs upon him. If Muhammad turns out to be a false prophet, then the whole religion hinges upon that. And the whole Quran is, is not holy. Whereas the Testament of Scripture, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, writings of Paul, Peter, uh, John, uh, Jude, for instance, like you have a bunch of people all writing about the same thing. So if, if any one of them was to be like, oh, we know this guy kind of went crazy. Well, you know, we have other people who said the exact same things. And so it's a testament that's kind of weaved together. So I think that's all I want to say about that. The books of the New Testament written. Um, the next point on here is something called the Marcion Heresy. And Marcion is this guy that lived in the 140s. That's when he kind of came about and uh, was writing and kind of going against the church. Here's a picture of him. He's always kind of pictured as kind of a weird, mean guy. Um, but anyways, what he did, what he believed, I have a video clip uh, from this documentary called Banned from the Bible that I'm going to show you in the next slide. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's from a history channel. It's pretty good, actually. Um, and basically, Marcion thought that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the Old New Testament were two different gods. He was like, I can't reconcile uh, how God is mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament, to paraphrase and simplify. Um, and maybe some of you have thought that at some point. Like, yeah, the God of the Old Testament does seem mean. The God of the New Testament does seem nice. But by the way, you can look in the Old Testament and find plenty of examples of God being loving and, and good. And by the way, you can find plenty of examples in the New Testament of God being just and, and, and pouring out judgment on people. For instance, Revelation. Anyways, so uh, Marcion, this early heretic, thought, oh, for him, he's going to throw out the whole Old Testament, and he likes the Gospel of Luke, but he's going to take out certain passages that refer to the Old Testament, and he's going to only uh, hold Paul as canon. So Marcion's Bible was just the book of Luke, kind of cut up, and the works of Paul. And the early church at around the time of the 140s wrote, the, and we have these things written down, We have the early church saying, Marcion had it all wrong. You can't just throw out Matthew, Mark, and and John. You can't cut up Luke. You know, what about the writings of Peter? They should be held with the writings of Paul, etc. So it's this cool story of how this false canon gets compared to the true canon, and and we can learn something as Christians about what we were against. So without further ado, here is the short video clip that I hope you enjoy begins some 150 years after the birth of Jesus. It was an obscure figure in history, a man named Marcion, who became the unlikely catalyst for a Christian version of the Holy Bible. He was a man of great wealth and strong convictions. Marcion of Pontus was called the Mus Ponticus, the Pontic Rat. Uh, He was a church leader who was a very wealthy individual. He owned his own ship. He was involved in the shipping industry. And he not only was very wealthy, but he had some very strict theological points of view. He was a Bible-believing, 
Bible-thumping Christian who believed everything that he thought was Christian in the Bible. But when he looked at the Jewish Bible, what he saw there startled him and appalled him because he was very literalistic in his reading. And so he took a look at the Jewish Bible and he thought he saw a God there who was harsh and vindictive and legalistic. And Marcion said, that's not the God that I believe in. Marcion was convinced that the God of the Hebrew Bible was not the God taught by Jesus. Without any church authority, Marcion created his own Christian Bible. Hebrew scripture, what Christians call the Old Testament, was banned in this book. The only writings he considered worthy were Luke's Gospel, with all references to the Old Testament erased, and Paul's letters. Considering what Marcion did, it's no wonder that one of his opponents said, shame on Marcion's eraser. Marcion wanted very badly to be accepted as a great church leader. And one day he met somebody who was very well known. Uh, and he came up to the person and he said, don't you recognize who I am? And this other church leader turned to Marcion and said, yes, you're the firstborn of Satan. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but I think there's something we can learn about Marcion and the early church at his time. They were not ready for Marcion to, to pick and choose what was going to be, like to, you have this theology and it's like, oh, we'll just take out the Old Testament because it doesn't match up. It's like, no, that's the testament of God's work up until the time of Christ. You can't just take that out. You can't just take out Mark and Matthew and John. And so the early church wrote against Marcion and his heresies. And we can see that already in 140, the church is beginning to form its canon because they have to combat what Marcion is saying. The next thing on the timeline is also a heresy. And these dates, uh, I put up 100 to 200 for the Gnostic heresies and then a question mark behind it because really the, 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 the Gnostic heresies, the Gnostics were, you, you could argue that they were actually around before Jesus. But what we're specifically talking about is the Gnostic heresies heretics that were somewhat Christian, these Christian Gnostics. And so I put down these dates and then a question mark just because I kind of finally had to decide what date am I going to put there and put this down because it was during this time, 100 to 200 AD, that the church had to wrestle with Gnosticism. And what is Gnosticism, you might ask? Well, it's kind of like this spiritualism that, that says, you know, all things, you pick and choose the things that you want to believe. There's this general sense that uh, the earth and physical stuff is bad and spiritual stuff, your, your spiritual heavenly things are good. And there's this thing about like the mysteries and the secrets that are like so highly revered. So I live in Manitou and I saw this picture uh, the other day. Uh, of, it's this house in Manitou that is like, oh, we'll do palm readings. And they put up a little sign in their window. <laughs> and it's, it's this kind of mysticism that's like, ooh, secret stuff. Like, ooh, I wonder what my palm says. And it's like, oh, well, I'll, somebody will tell you and you could pay for that. And it's like these secret things like, um, like oh, the, the, the mysteries of the world have been made known. But, ooh, don't you want to hear these secrets? I got some new, fresh, religious secrets to share with you. Um, and that's one of the big things that the Gnostics believed in. And so there's all of these books um, that the early Christians had to, had to say, no, 
those, aren't, those don't belong in the text of Scripture. Those are written by some Gnostic author to present some mysterious, mysterious hidden thing and make it known. And I have up here the, just this paperback uh, recopy of the Nag Hammani Library. And you can come up and look at it if you want. It's the definitive translation of the Gnostic Scriptures. So basically people were... Here's, here's how, an oversimplification, but for whatever it's worth, hopefully it does help. So someone would say, oh, I wonder what you know, maybe Mary thought a long time ago. And so they would write on behalf of Mary, pseudepigrapha. They would write on behalf of a false writer. They would like, under the pseudonym of Mary, they would write, oh, maybe there's a gospel of Mary. I wonder what secret she could have revealed. And so we have something um, like the gospel of Mary that you can find in here. And it's only a few pages long. And in fact, most of the manuscripts we have of it are missing. And so uh, pages one, two, three, four, five, and six are missing, and the Gospel of Mary starts on page seven. Has anybody ever heard of the Gospel of Mary, just in like conversation or whatever? And it's this gospel written by a Gnostic, so someone that's interested in the secrets of of God and like revealing, "Ooh, I got this secret to tell you, and I'll tell you if you give me some money or come to my house for this special meeting, um, and we'll go in my basement and light some candles, and hey, we'll, we'll say some chants, and um, we'll, we'll talk about what Mary." could have thought if, if Jesus would have revealed some secrets to her. And so all these Gnostic writings, these, they came much after the, when the apostles lived and when they wrote. And so anyways, we have this gospel of Mary um, written as late as 180 AD. So could Mary have still been alive? <laughs> Shake your head. No, she would have been like 100 and gosh, Something, maybe 105 if she wrote this. She didn't write it. It's, like a, it's written under a false name. And it says things like this. Uh, Gospel of Mary chapter 4, verse 32, says things like, uh, Beware that no one leads you astray. Uh, those who will seek him will find him. So it's kind of like cutting and pasting of some scripture. And then chapter 5, verse 7, Mary answered and said this, What is hidden from you, I will proclaim. So everybody say, Ooh, a secret. And, and she just says, Blessed are you that did not waver in the sight of me, for, uh, for where the mind is, there also is the treasure. So it's like, ooh, that's the secret. Great. Uh, chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mary, Peter spoke um, and said, he questioned, uh, he questioned the Savior. Did the Savior really speak privately with this woman and not openly to us? Did he re- really reveal these secrets to her, not us? So even in the Gospel is some doubts about whether Mary did hear these secrets or not. And to to, to really talk about a lot of the Gnostic library that we have now, we could call it Little A Apocrypha. Maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard of, uh, I guess I could list some of these things, Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Egyptians, Gospel of Truth, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, um, all these, the, the prayer of the Apostle Paul. These are all Gnostic writings. So these are all, for some reason, people saying, Ooh, I'll write on behalf of Paul. I'll write on behalf of Mary. And I'll, I'll deliver the secrets as if God delivered them to Mary, but then now they're de- being delivered to me. And if you come to my meeting, and if you say these seances and give me some money, then I will also reveal the secrets to you. And so that's, 
This whole general phenomenon of the Gnostics and the Gnostic library and the little a apocryphal books that did not make it to Scripture. And so many of them we would just say, duh, of course they didn't make it to Scripture because A, they came way after when the apostles lived, so the apostles didn't write them. And B, they're, they're under this heading of Gnostics and, and people just making up things to, to spread secrets and, and mysteries. Because if you say to someone, hey, I have a secret, what do you do? You listen, you're like, ooh, what is it? What could it be? Is it about me? Is it about so-and-so? Is it about me and her? Ooh. Because secrets gain, don't you think? Like if someone came up to you and you're like, ooh, I have a secret. Do you want to hear it? You're like, nah. You would never say that. You'd be like, yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear the secret. And so I think it's under that just big idea heading. And, and, and I'm sure scholars and historians would be rolling their eyes at me saying that and oversimplifying the whole Gnostic Christianity movement. But that's kind of how I see it, that they would use the secrets as a way of publishing and, 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 and spreading on secret things for their own glory. So anyways, that is that. Let's move on now to this uh, the Muratorian Fragment is this really cool piece of paper. Here's a picture of it. It's only 85 lines, and it dates back to 170 AD. And this is a, is a, a pretty cool piece of paper. Once again, only 85 lines, um, and it lists. So whoever wrote this, we don't know. It's named after the guy who actually found it in the 1700s, I believe. You could, you could wiki, wiki check uh, that on me. Um, but in this document, the author writes about the books that are sacred to the church wherever he was. Uh, uh, we don't know where exactly this piece of paper was written from. Like, was he in Rome? Was he in the Roman Empire? Probably so. But we don't know ex- where exactly. But for whatever, um, but what it does say is that as a church, they held these things as canon. They talk about these sacred texts. And he lists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anybody ever heard of those books before? Yeah, there are gospels that we still have today. So even... As far back as 170, <coughs> churches were saying these books are holy and sacred. And by the way, I included, this is a rabbit trail, but there's always a sweet quote on your notes, on your skillet. And I included a quote from Irenaeus, uh, another church father who wrote around the same time, 170 AD. And he says, there's actually four authentic gospels. And his argument is that there's four corners of the universe and four principal winds. His argument's kind of weird, um, but it must have had some... Uh, figurative application to the ancient world, but he's just like, of course there's four Gospels. Of course we wouldn't include the Gospel of Mary or Thomas because there's four, and those four have been given to us, and the four have been set. And so here's this, in 170, this other guy who wrote this, uh, this Marturian fragment uh, said that there's four Gospels, and then he goes on to list these books. He says these are also sacred. He says Acts, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Thessalonians, uh, uh, Romans, Philemon, Titus, First, Second Timothy, Jude, First, Second John, and the the Revelation of John. So that's pretty much the entire New Testament laid before. So whoever this guy was writing in 170, we know it was written in 170 because he he lists this church leader as present, so we could trace him to about 170 A.D. Um, how awesome is it that we have this piece of paper here? Like here before us stands pretty much the canon as we have it today. And how awesome is that? It's like as early as 170, the canon was formed. Um, wherever this guy was writing from, in, this, in his church, we had the canon. And he does list this. He says, um, there, he does list uh, a, some books that are not in Scripture. But listen to what he says about them. For instance, he lists the revelation of Peter. 
And you're like, ooh, the revelation of Peter, did they hold that to be holy? Well, somewhat, but somewhat not. Listen to what he says. He says, we received the apocalypses of John and Peter. Apocalypse is like revelation. So we have the revelation of John and of Peter. But then he adds this line. Uh, Though some of us are not willing that the latter, the latter being the Peter, uh, the apocalypse of Peter, be read in church. And so it's like, okay, already in 170 AD, we have these books, but there's questions about some of them. Questions about this, this apocalypse of Peter. But don't read it in church. And by the way, it's not like he's saying, uh, well, it's, it's like he's saying, if you read it in church, when you gather, it's a holy, it's a sacred book. So don't read it in church. Some of us aren't ready for that one to be read at church. So you can imagine that that one didn't make the canon because even as early as 170, people had their doubts about it. Maybe they thought it was a forgery. Maybe they thought it wasn't really written by Peter. Maybe they thought, uh, we don't know where it came from. For whatever reason, it did not. It may had some doubts here and would not make the canon. Because if you look in your Bible, can you find the apocalypse of Peter? Probably not. So uh, that's 170 AD. And then look how far we have to skip ahead um, to the Council of Nicaea. And I mentioned the Council of Nicaea, not because they, some of you might have this impression, and it's kind of this folklore thing, that, oh, at the Council of Nicaea, they chose what was canon for us. And that's just not true. That's, that, that would be a part of the folklore um, that we, we do know what they talked about at the Council, and they didn't talk about the canon. So if you ever hear someone saying, oh, yeah, the Council determined what the what the, what the books of the Bible were, and Constantine was there, and he, you know, he messed up the whole thing, and he said, what, but no, that's, that's just folklore. It, it didn't happen at the Council of Nicaea. Um, there was a guy who was at the Council of Nicaea. His name's Athanasius, and we have a letter written by him, and uh, the letter dates back to 376, and he lists all 27 books that are in our New Testament as they stand today. And this is where we really begin as a church to say, okay, the, the 27 books of the New Testament are set in stone because a few years later, the Council of Hippo, not to be confused with the animal, but the city, the ancient city that's now in present-day Algeria, there was a council that convened and said, yes, these 27 books are the 27 books of the New Testament. And it's not like they got to just, oh, we'll just randomly pick which ones. No, the council is determining which, uh, excuse me, the council is confirming what the early church determined as Scripture One more point, uh, and that's in 397, the Council of Carthage also repeats what Hippo, the Council of Hippo, said. And these 27 books are, uh, these are the ones that are canon. These are the rule, the standard. So that's very briefly, I mean, it is very brief. It's only eight points. A very brief understanding of how we got the New Testament. It was written, it was received. And it was people like you and me, the church, going back to my thesis. It was people picking up the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, and saying, this is holy. My God is speaking to me through this text. And I'm learning about the story of Jesus and his actual words and what he said. This is holy. This is sacred. I'm going to copy this. I'm going to pass this on. I'm going to give it to other churches and other church would receive it and say, yes. This is awesome. It's speaking to us to then, and it's speaking to us today. And this, this point that I'll end on is that the Bible, the New Testament, formed very organically. I think this word grassroots is used a lot to talk about how things aren't, you know, decided for you. A corporate, it isn't corporately decided. The government isn't deciding, but rather from the grassroots, figurative grass, roots up. The people like you and me decide upon things 
And then it's, it's, it's declared what it is because they decided, and it's like church, early churches all over the Roman Empire at the same time are picking up on the books that are holy and sacred to them. And guess what? They all turned out to be very similar lists of what was canon. And if there was books that had questions about them, like the Apocalypse of Peter, for example, like in, the, in the, the fragment piece that we talked about, well, other churches would say, yeah, we have our doubts about that one. Let's put it aside. Let's not pass it on with as much verver as we do the other books. Let's only, you know, let's pass the ones that we know are sacred. And that's how we got the canon. That's how we got the New Testament. That's our story. That's our, I mean, it's, it's a very simple story. It's a story of books being passed on. It's an organic formation. It's a formation where no council sat down and said, here's the books that are. No, it's, it's more like, no, they, they decided. They didn't decide. They, they confirmed. Yes, th- these are the books the early church has been passing on because these are the books that have been speaking to the church. And they have authority because they're written by the apostles or they are written at the time of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so we can put our hope and our faith and our trust that these words are the words that God wanted us to have. And so it's with that um, that we'll close today. We'll thank God for the canon of Scripture that we have. And so if you would... Uh, bow your heads. Um, God, we do come before you, and we are so grateful that we have the Bible as it is, that, that we can um, have our tr- put our trust and our faith in these words, that they are the words you wanted us to have. God, we thank you for the, the, the family members that we have had come before us, those church history uh, family members that have picked up on which books were holy and sacred and passed them on. And they have authority from the apostles and the authority of eyewitnesses of Jesus. And, and so, God, we, we praise your name. We thank you that we have these books. God, inspire us to read them. Inspire us through um, these words and the text. God, encourage us to pick it up today and read it. Pick it up this week and, and have new and fresh understandings of what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing in this world today. So we praise your name, Jesus. We worship you. And everybody said... Amen. All right, friends, you're officially dismissed. Meet somebody as you leave and be here next week for more talks on the apocryphal books of the Bible. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.